Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda Palmer, where our mission is providing strength to the weakest among us, from both kids in foster care and their biological families. We also talk about topics that affect all children and families. It is our hope that we can inspire you to become the best bio, step, foster, adoptive, or whatever kind of mom or dad that you can be. Part of our mission is inspiring others to become amazing foster families as well, if that is your calling. If it's not your calling, great. Find a thing that sets your soul on fire and go be awesome at that. Let's make our communities great together. Be sure to go by Jason M. Palmer and check out the blog post and other podcast episodes. You can search Jason and Amanda Palmer on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcast. If we don't show up, be sure to send me an email and let me know and I will try to get it on there. We'd love to have you leave us some feedback in the form of a rating and review. It really helps the show gain attention. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have a special guest. Today we have Caroline Bailey. She's from Southwest Missouri and has worked in child welfare for the last 18 years. She and her husband have fostered for four years and adopted two children from foster care. They're that rare family that ended up adopting the only two kids placed with them. They also did respite a few times, but decided to close their license after the adoption of their daughter. Carolyn also writes for Adoption.com and has been featured on various blogs and websites. People can reach her on her blog, Baron to Blessed, or through Facebook or Instagram with the same Baron to Blessed name. Well, welcome, Caroline. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? We're doing wonderful. Good. We found you because of a post that went viral on Facebook that your cousin had written and put on your Baron to Bless Facebook page. My right. wife found it and she sent it to me and said, you need to read this. And I said, yes, ma'am, because that's what I do when she tells me what to do. It's the smartest thing. And we contacted you after we read it and said, hey, this is powerful. And you put us in contact with your cousin. We had a chance to talk with her last week. And we were looking through the things you had on, on your Facebook page and on your blog as well. And by the way, that looks really nice. I, I just started a blog not too awful long ago, and I was looking at it going, wow, she's obviously been doing this for a while. Yes, I have. <laughs> How long have you been doing the blog? Uh, I started the blog in 2012. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you have seven years in there. Yes, I do. So yeah, we, we found you and we said, hey, not only does your cousin have a, a, a great story, you know, Aubrey's story or Auburn, I always mess that up. Auburn's story was, was really interesting and, and insightful, but so do you. It's not common. You see that many people in the same family on that same path. So I was interested to talk to you as well. Sure. And the more we talked, the more I found out, you know, you're really, you know, you're into this. You've worked in the, in the system for a long time. You have a lot of experience with a lot of kids. You've fostered, you've adopted through the system, and you've done a relative place or relative adoption as well. So I know that you have a lot there. And as we were reading through some of the blog posts, I saw that there was a lot on there about infertility as well. Okay, I have to say this with a little caveat. I don't have a whole lot of experience thinking about the infertility thing. And sure. I say I because when Amanda and I were together, you know, we have we have one biological son between the two of us. She had one from a previous marriage that we had those two. And then we had our oldest daughter who wasn't really our daughter, wasn't a foster placement. It was kind of a relative thing, but it was never official. Sure. And when our but when our third our second son third child, we'll call it, was born. She hemorrhaged really bad and she had to have a partial hysterectomy done. And how old were you at that point? I was 20. 
20. Yeah. So at that point, we like we were done having biological kids. So I just finished up my the rest of my hysterectomy last year. And then last year she she had some some medical issues and they said, hey, let's do all of this. It was she had a lot of cysts and, and some issues with that. So it was just so important for them to take care of it that way. Um, so we were done at that point. And at 41 years old, my, I was going to have all the kids out of the house. It was going to be me and mama, empty nesters, living that easy life. Yeah. And um, I'm 42 and I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. And I haven't quite kicked the 18-year-old out yeah, yet. He's either. 19 now. 19. Yeah, he just turned 19. Last so, but, you know, when we had kind of that picture in our head. Mm-hmm. And we came out of that, and because we knew, like, there was no, there's no fertility options once you've had a hysterectomy, right? Right. You're right. done. So I never really thought about that side of it. For us, it was just we're done. And I know a, a lot of people struggle with the infertility options. Well, for you, it was we were done. Well, yeah. If you want to hear God laugh, just tell him your plans. And so now all of a sudden, we're not anymore. We never explored the infertility world. Right. And I know that's huge for a lot of people. It is. And I know that your story was interesting because of where your infertility issues began. Sure. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, So I was really young. I was two years old when my appendix ruptured and that had sent gangrene throughout my system and they cleaned it up. They removed the appendix and my mom tells me, that the doctor came out and said, she's going to survive. She's fine, but she might have problems with her period when she gets older. And so my mom didn't think anything about it. And uh, we just went about our day, our, our life. And when I was 11 years old, I was at school one day and became suddenly very ill. My teacher took me to the nurse and I wasn't throwing up or anything like that. I was just, I lost all the color in my skin. I was weak. I was lethargic out of it. And my temperature had spiked to 105 very suddenly. And so my mom took me to the doctor. And at first they diagnosed me with a stomach bug. Uh, there was My actual pediatrician was out on vacation at the time. So it was a resident that we were seeing. My mom kept pushing that this was not a stomach bug. Something far worse was going on. Well, I'm so an expert, but that does not sound like any stomach bug right. I've ever heard of. Right. They took me over to the ER and ran a bunch of blood work and my white, my white blood count was off the charts and I was extremely ill. They did not know what was wrong with me. They were thinking it might've been the cancer. So they put me in a hospital and I really was dying for a week. Um, they could not figure out what was wrong. I was, I had not started my period yet. So I was premenstrual. Thankfully, my pediatrician came back into town and had received a call about me and raced up to the hospital, read the chart and said, we need to do exploratory surgery now. So they did a CAT scan. They saw a mass in my abdomen. They thought it was a tumor, just a massive tumor. It wasn't. And mind you, I was a competitive dancer, so I was pretty small. Um, anyway, but they saw this mass, mass in my tumor, or excuse me, mass in my abdomen they went into an exploratory surgery and actually what they saw on the, on the CAT scan was the, um, it was a, my uterus, it was massive. 
my uterus was full of infection. My right ovary, my fallopian tubes were all full of infection. It was spreading throughout my abdomen, leaking onto my bladder. And so they had to take out all of it in order to save my life. Um, the type of, it is scary. Yeah. It happened really fast. I was in the hospital for almost a month. The, The weekend before it happened, I was at my uncle's farm playing on the farm. It just suddenly just became so ill. What they believe happened was whenever I had my appendicitis, when it ruptured, there was a pocket of infection that had stayed behind in my system and then encapsulated itself into a, a sac and it ruptured. The, infect, the bacteria itself is called Bactroides fragilis. And at the time, this was in 1983, at the time I was only the second known case to have this type of bacteria in the United States. And um, like my, case, my surgery, my case has been examined over and like there was an international medical conference going on. My case has been looked at in various journals and things. But now it's pretty common uh, that Bactroid is fragilis. It's just at the time, I was a second known, known case in the United States. So I was in the hospital for a month, and I missed that entire half of the school year um, in the sixth grade. So, yeah, that's... Wow, that's, that's a happened. tough time to, to be going through that. I mean, we've got a couple of middle schoolers in our house right now, and yeah. middle school is a tough time. I, I don't look back on my middle school with years with, uh, with any kind of uh, real nostalgia either. You know, that's, that's a tough yeah. time in and of itself. I yeah. can't imagine how that, how that made you feel as, as a young girl. Yeah. So, yeah, because obviously people were, you know, girls were starting their periods. They're, you know, we were learning about how babies, where they come from, how babies are made. And, you know, I, it's really hard to put in words how I, how I felt about it. I mean, I just wanted to get back to being normal again, but what I thought, thought was normal. And, but I knew that I was not going to be normal ever again. You know, none of us were my, you know, my, cause it didn't affect me. It affected my parents. It affected everyone that I, I was friends with and we our family members. And, you know, my parents were advised at the time not to talk about it, to allow me to bring it up. And so I didn't bring it up really <laughs> because my parents, you know, we, we kind of look when we're children, we look to our parents on how how to process things, like where to go. And they had experienced such trauma themselves um, from that experience. They really didn't talk about it either. So we just kind of went along with life. Um, But I definitely internalized a lot of feelings about myself during middle school and high school and even into my 20s and 30s for that matter. What kind of feelings did you internalize? Um, you know, I just felt a lot of shame. I was raised Southern Baptist and, um, this idea and, you know, my parents never said this to me, but I'm sure I I heard it somewhere in church that illness can be brought on by sin. Um, I've heard that too. We we didn't, we didn't grow up too far apart there. So I I can see where that, that could really cause a lot of shame. That had to be tough at your age. You know, and, and I, and also just, um, shame and I even questioned, well, maybe, maybe it would have been better if I would have been born a boy. Uh, why would God leave me out of this? I really felt that like boys 
could look at me and know immediately that I couldn't have kids. Like, I, like there was something about me that, I know this is a crazy analogy, but you know, like whenever there's a pack of wild animals and one is kind of lame and that one kind of gets left out, that's kind of how I felt in a way. Like there was something wrong with me and people could tell, but on the outside, I mean, that was, those weren't my internal feelings, but on the outside, I was very active, very social. Um, I was on a dance team in high school. I made really good grades. Like literally no one knew except for a very few close friends, like how I really felt about myself. And now here we are. I mean, I'm getting ready to have my 30 year high school reunion in July. And so I'm friends with a lot of people on Facebook and they'll message me saying, I had no idea that you, you were experiencing that, that you had gone through that in high school. Um, you know, so I, I really kept a lot of things in. Wow. And keeping that in while you're on the outside trying to look like everybody else, be like everybody else, because that's the mantra of middle school is I am my own person and I want to be an individual just like everybody else. That that had to be a difficult dichotomy for you to experience. Yeah. I mean, really up until age 11, my life was, I had a really great, happy childhood. Thankfully, my, my parents were still married and my mom was the kind of mom that would literally bake cookies every day for me after school. And she would even write my name and icing on the cookies. Like it was ridiculous. She, (laughs) I can't even compare to her when it comes to stuff like that. Um, just a very nurturing environment. And, you know, I was, like I said, I was a competitive dancer. I was in theater. Um, but after my illness, it was so sudden shocking. It was like our entire life just kind of came to us to a halt suddenly. And then, you know, you, you kind of, pick back up and go on. And my parents, while we didn't talk about it, and I probably need to talk about it more at the time, they did a great job of saying, okay, life goes on. We're going to pick up the pieces. We're going to move on, you know? And so I still remained active and did lots of things, but sort of at the expense of my feelings and my emotions, if that makes sense. Well, absolutely, you know, because you and I aren't that far off in age, and I remember that time frame, and they didn't diagnose things like depression or anything like that unless unless you're on your second or third suicide attempt. You know, mental health was not well was not well seen. It wasn't thought of as as a health or illness issue. It was looked at as more of a stigma about somebody, like something they. The the example I've heard that I like is we wouldn't shame you for having cancer. Right. But if you have mental illness, if you have just depression over some really tough stuff, you know, if you're dealing with some post-traumatic stress, well, we, we would shame you for that. You know, that that was kind of the underlying tone of that generation, I think, because they just didn't understand it. You know, it's and it's not to to talk bad about anybody of that time. It just it wasn't understood. You know, and, and no one talked about infertility back then, like at all. I mean, it not like it is now. Thankfully, now there are support groups and there are blogs and national organizations for it. But in 1983, I mean, you people didn't even talk about adoption. I mean, adoption was supposed to be a family secret. You know, yep. infertility certainly wasn't talked about, especially for a, an 11 year old girl. So my mom would have people say things to her all the time that were horrible. And she didn't tell me any of this stuff until I was an adult. Um, you know, things like, well, at least you don't have to worry about her getting pregnant as a teenager. 
you know, just so. Wow. Yeah, people say the greatest things, don't they? And I, I'm like, if you don't know what to say, then just don't say anything. You know, but I do try to give people the benefit of the doubt and realize that sometimes people just don't know. Like, maybe that's your time to educate them. Like, you know. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's been a very interesting life, just to say the least. And then when I was 20, uh, my left ovary had to be removed because I had a cyst um, on my left ovary. So at 20 was when I started hormone replacement therapy, which brought on the whole grief process again, because why do I have to take these pills to be female? You know, just a lot of mixed, mixed up emotions and feelings and confusion about it. Um, I'm also, I've always, excuse me, I've also been a really strong willed person. Even as a little girl, I was kind of defiant about a lot of things. And so I like to handle things myself. So I never really reached out for help. Um, actually I was 22 and I called my parents. I was working part-time while I was in school. I called my parents and I said, I think I need to talk to you. And they rushed over immediately, got me in the car and I started crying. And they said, we've been waiting for over 10 years for you to do this. And it just, it was like that day at my desk, it just came crashing in, um, and they had been waiting for me to bring it up, you know? So anyway. Yeah, that's a lot. Have you ever done any, uh, any therapy around the grief process? Yes, I did go to therapy just for a little bit, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, it, it was fine. I mean, it helped me through some of it that I just felt like, I don't know how to put in the words. I, I felt like this was something that wasn't going to be resolved. This was going to be a lifelong process. And um, I couldn't just figure it out. Sessions. Does that make sense? Plus there was a lot of developmental grieving. So as my friends started getting married, I would grieve thinking that no one's ever going to wear it when marry me because I'm damaged goods. As I started getting, you know, baby shower invitations. I would grieve that again. Um, when my friends started having babies, it was like every part of that early twenties, mid twenties, early adulthood life, I would start the grieving process over again. And really I grieved up until the moment that I picked up our foster son and held him for the first time. Um, and there, you know, that was, I was 36 then. Um, but still now there's even moments when I will grieve it, especially when it comes to my children, like wishing I would have had the opportunity to carry them in my body. Um, wishing I would have known what it would have been like to see them right after they were born or, you know, so I, infertility really is a, or barrenness in my situation is it's a lifelong process and it it was a medical trauma so I I have flashes of myself in the in the hospital and some of the sounds and the 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 smells and things like that yeah some PTSD yeah yeah and it it is difficult I mean I did I did have two children um, but after my second child not being able to have any more you know I I still grieve that 
to this day sometimes, you know, and there was always this part of me that felt like, okay, if, if I can't have any more children, then what is my purpose? I, I, I'm a mom. I'm, I'm a woman. This is what I'm designed to do. And when you can't do that, um, it leaves a whole lot of feelings that you just, sometimes you don't know what to deal to do with all that. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I understand a portion of it. I, I don't understand obviously everything that you've been through. Um, you know, so I can only imagine how hard that was to navigate as, as a young girl, because as a 20 year old young girl, I didn't know how to navigate it then. So I can only imagine, you know, at the early age of 11, you know, being able to navigate that and doing it in a healthy manner too. And it sounds like, you know, you had a really good support system. Yeah. You know, I think that kids are really good at faking things. Um, <laughs> the most yeah. con artist God ever made. <laughs> As parents, we know that, but um, even those things that they really are, that are really hurting them, they will get a, do, they get, do a good job of putting on masks. And so I, you know, like in the seventh grade, when the girls were in the locker room talking about their periods, I would just nod my head. Like I knew exactly what they were talking about. Right. Long conversations without really having to say a word. So I wasn't lying. I never lied. I just would acknowledge it like, oh, and laugh at the jokes and just that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, it, um, it forced me to, uh, do whatever I, I didn't want anybody knowing about it at all. So. As a seventh grade boy in the past, I can tell you that I just have a hard time believing girls joked about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we did. <laughs> yeah, well, that. I mean, whenever they would talk or they would say things or, you know, people would laugh or whatever. It, I just, I just always went along with the conversations without actually having to say anything. So no one really knew. I had maybe one friend, one, one or two close friends total that knew, but no one else really knew what, what I had been through. Um, so I can't imagine what that struggle did as as you got older and and how that struggle manifested itself through you know I know a lot of a lot of girls when when they become young women you know up into their early 20s I know a lot of of women who have that maternal instinct at a young age you know they they want to have a kid as a matter of fact one of our our oldest son one of the, his high school friends actually two of them who ended up married um they came by how old is Chris and Haley their early 20s early 20s and they came by the other day you know excited that she's pregnant you know and my wife has asked my wife to be the godmother like that's a time for that being a big thing right and and that how did that play out through your early 20s um you know for me i well i found i, I knew immediately that i couldn't have kids i my now my dad and my doctor do not remember saying this to me but i remember it um they i was told when i was in the hospital that i would never be able to have children uh so i knew that i couldn't so after that and and, on, and to be honest with you i i was a i was a dancer but i was also a tomboy so I would much rather play with the dirt and Hot Wheels and worms. And I'm not joking when I say that, than I would, than I did Barbie dolls. I don't even think I owned a Barbie doll. And that, that is true. Our Little oldest Barbie. daughter was that way. I know what you're saying. Yeah. So, um, but after my hysterectomy, I 
I really started focusing on, okay, what do I need to do in my life? Um, of course, I mean, I was her typical teenager in the eighties, you know, but, um, I really became focused on school, going to school, wanting to make a difference, that kind of stuff. So I never really pictured myself as a parent because I didn't know how it was going to happen. Um, and you know, the thing is people would always say to me, Oh, well, you know, you can always adopt. You can always adopt. Well, adoption is a totally separate thing than infertility. And I understand that they are linked, but they're two separate life experiences. And I felt like I knew that if I didn't get to a place where I fully grieved infertility, then I would not be at a place to be able to, to bring a child into my home and be healthy about it. So I had to go through that grieving process that again, that took a long time. And, um, you know, I would, I would go to baby showers and fake it while I was there. Like I was the happiest person there to be there. And then literally get in my car, grab the wheel, start crying, cry all the way home. And now uh, my husband, he and I were friends in my early twenties before we started dating. And he, he would see me do this. So he knew it was really hard for me to go. And he would say, just stop going to them. I'm like, well, how can I? Cause really just cause I can't have a baby. doesn't mean that I shouldn't be thankful that someone else can, you know, that's so selfish. Uh, you know, so, so yeah, I just focus on school and work and, um, trying to make life as normal as I could given the very abnormal situation I was in. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a real tough journey. It sounds like you've handled it fairly well. That's, that's one of the things that, that I've learned in my own personal journey over the last few years is that life is, life is a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering in life, but the important part is, is how you choose to not just view it. It's, it's not just about giving it a different name. It's about how you approach life and you seem to have come through it with a very positive attitude. And, you know, that's, that's a powerful thing. Where did you get that from? Um, my mom, I think my dad is very outgoing. Uh, he's more of an extrovert and he's a very hard worker. My mom is more of an introvert, but my mom has this silent strength about her. Um, you know, my, my dad was a type that he was like a cheerleader in a lot of ways. Okay. Are you feeling heartbroken, honey? Well, let's go to the mall. You know, like he was, you know, kind of like my mom was just more like subtle about it. And she would always say to me from very young age, by the grace of God, go I. And, um, I get emotional. When I talk about my mom, um, both my parents are still alive. So, but, um, she would share stories with me of what her life was like. She grew up extremely impoverished and she would share a lot of her life stories with me. And I think from a very early age, I was taught empathy, how to be empathetic. And I'm, you know, physically I may have never given birth to a child or I may be barren, but when I look at what has filled my life, and then I know what other people are going through. I've gone through, you know, my life isn't barren at all. Um, but I, I, I do believe I get that from my mom. Yeah. That's, that's great that you had that, 
good example to mo- model for you at a young age because a yeah. lot of people don't get that. So, yeah. <clears throat> well, we we asked you to come here um, to talk about you know the whole the infertility side is a big piece of it, but also the foster and adoption side and. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the question about that, I guess, that, that I wanted to ask was just what sets your soul on fire when it comes to kids, taking care of kids? What is it that just that just lights your soul fire? You know, I, I just wish people understood what's really happening with children in our communities. I wish they understood that it that. um You know, being a foster parent, I'm not anymore, but I, I work, I worked in the system for 18 years, but, you know, being involved in the system, working with kids who come from hard places that it's, it doesn't feel good all the time. Actually, it feels good. Not hardly ever. <laughs> we definitely have our good moments. Don't get me wrong, but you know, there's not a hardship. Um, I wish that people would do whatever they could in whatever capacity they're able to, um, to help kids out. Um, I hear people talk about kids like, well, you know, that kid needs a, that kid needs a spanking or that kid's this or that. And my, I always question, hmm, I wonder what their trauma history is. You know, I think once you become trauma informed and once you get involved in child welfare and you see exactly what's going on in our communities, it really changes the way you view so many things in your life. Um, you know, even working with biological parents, you know, if we look back through their, their histories, a lot of them come from places of trauma themselves, trauma that was never, they never got help for. So what sets my soul on fire to me is educating people about childhood trauma and encouraging them that if they feel led to get involved in working with foster children in any capacity at all, um, then they should do it, but that it's not going to feel good. You know, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about child abuse neglect. We're not talking, talking about puppies and rainbows and fun things like that. So, um, yeah. I understand what you're saying. And, and that part of the kid next door is, is really truer than anybody understands. You know, we have about 150 yards that way a family who I know is, is in a lot of struggle. And I know that the, there was a recent incident which involved some of my son's friends and some law stuff. So I won't go into all that, but, um, but I know that the children's division is involved in their life and they need to be, I mean, these guys, these there's, there's three young kids over there and they need some of that. And they show up over here on a fairly regular basis. As a matter of fact, the uh the the youngest he comes over sometimes seven or eight times a day mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and, and he he's a good kid that's the thing it's like all three of them as far as i can tell are good kids and i'm a pretty decent judge of character typically if i tell you someone's a bad human there's a real reason i was raised my father was a cop and i developed a sixth sense about people and if i don't like you immediately there's a reason for it and <laughs> and I, we have some kids who um our second youngest turtle if you listen to his story, we, we have his a podcast about his story that um, is coming out right now. And Turtle lived his first year of life on the streets. His mom is and was an addict. Um, her his father died from a heroin overdose. They, he was a gang member. They were 
down in, in the roughest parts of St. Louis. Um, everybody knows about Ferguson, right? I mean, you can, I know, I have no people in the UK who knows, know all about Ferguson, right? And I'm right. like, but you don't understand is Ferguson's not that part of, part of town. But right. North City, North City, that's a good place to get you killed. And that's where Turtle grew up. Like, so his first year, he was spinning around a lot of challenging people. And he has that ability as well to just look at people and judge you, judge your character. And, you know, that's the, actually, he loves to play with this one little boy. They're just, they're good friends. And of course they fight like little kids do sometimes, but in large part, they're just great kids. And in all honesty, I don't know that I have met a bad kid yet. I've met some kids with a lot of struggles who come out of a lot of trauma from places that are broken and that have damaged them in a lot of ways. But foster care, one thing it has given us is a lot of experiences where we can see those broken places becoming healed. Absolutely. You know, and Turtle is one of the great examples of that. I have one picture of him that we were at my son's football game and he was about a year and a half old. And Turtle, if you would walk up to him, and he was a cute little guy for like a genuinely cute little dude, and you, you walk up to him and people all the time would be, oh, you're so cute. And they like try and, you know, like shake his hand or, and he would stare you down with this screw you look in his eyes. He would rotate his body, and when he got all the way around, he'd cross his arms across his chest and give you his back. Like, you're not good enough to look at. I want you to know that I'm ignoring you. Like, he came from that dark, hateful-looking place, which at one and a half, two years old is kind of frightening to see. Yeah, People were scary, though. People hurt him, and so there's no trust there. He had every reason for that, but now his kindergarten teacher, he started kindergarten this year and his kindergarten teacher talks about how he's just a joy to have in class and he's friendly and he says, and, and to see that turnaround in kids is one of the, one of the most singular joys that we've found in, in dealing with foster kids, because man, as tough as it is, like these kids come out of some stuff like this same little boy, like he's done more drugs than most of the people you've ever met. And that was by the time he was one. Like his hair follicle sample came back with a list and uh, he's been through some stuff, but you look at him today and and that resilience and seeing that resilience of a kid is so powerful that it gives us hope when we deal with some of these kids in so much trauma. If it's done right, there's, there's so many pieces of it that you can help them to, to begin to heal. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, trauma changes the brain. So when they're really little, they're experiencing neglect you know, their brain is being changed by that and they're in survival mode. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why my cousin Auburn and I decided to post her story about her son on my Facebook page. We absolutely did not expect it to do do what it did. That was shocking to us, but we're both so thankful about it because we just, we feel like it's so important for people to understand childhood trauma. And that it just doesn't go away whenever you remove them from that environment. I mean, certainly removing them from an abusive, neglectful environment uh, keeps them safe. But there's still, that trauma still manifests in their lives a lot. And sometimes in unexpected ways, you know. Um, So we're thankful that that post went viral and did what it did. Because, I mean, I'm getting messages from people who have experienced trauma in their life as children. And, you know, people I've never met before, it's just random strangers are messaging me now and telling me about their life stories. And uh, I think there's a lot of healing that can take place. 
and the thing about trauma too is I, I, I mean, even whenever things happen on the news that are big, I always think, oh, I wonder what happened to that person. Like, I wonder what trauma, you know, and I hear other people like, oh my gosh, they need to put that person in jail and throw away the key. And I'm like, there's some trauma there. Like, I, I wish that person could have gotten help when they most likely needed it. And I don't know. I mean, the thing in brain science, the way that the brain is being studied, the way that we know that trauma affects brain chemistry and the makeup of the brain, it's just fascinating to me. And I, and I know it's a field that still is going to have so much more research that needs to be done in it. But, you know, we all know of kids, just like your little guy that come from absolutely horrible situations and with consistency and stability and nurturing patience and understanding that they're not going to appreciate you all the time. Um, they're not just going to change overnight, you know, but we know those kids that come from those places now are, are doing really well. Um, but we need for foster families to be realistic and to understand that, you know, it's not going to feel good all of the time. Absolutely. Foster care will break your heart in a lot of ways, but sometimes it breaks it in a good way. You know, um, I, I know foster families who, we're dead set on a certain age and they only wanted to go for ones that might be available for adoption. They never wanted to work with biological parents. And we're like, okay, but this is foster care. So reunification is the goal. Right. And a couple years into it, they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that we said yes, because we got to help this biological parent reunify and we got to help this child. And it was like, they, they evolved along with the process as well. That would definitely be our story. Yeah. You know, our first two foster kids, um, we're, we were kind of like you guys, and then our first two foster kids became our first adoptive kids as well. Yeah. And um, I, I knew, I know a lot of the local law enforcement and their biological mom. I, I know, uh, I was talking with one deputy that I know, and he said, oh, I remember when her mom was getting in trouble and she was the one who was going into care. Mm-hmm. And so it was real easy when we first heard this story, like that, you know, their, their father was murdered on a drug deal gone wrong and it had to do with mom and some other things. And, and so it's real easy to look and point a finger and say, you know, how could you do this? You're a horrible human. Throw away the key. Uh, but then you find out that she grew up in the, in the system as well. Right. And I'm not quite so surprised that the people who grow up seeing that as their norm don't do different. Right. You know, she right. didn't see different. And it's not until you can change that piece of a person. And and we saw that in another case where we had two little kids and the mom was genuinely certifiably um definitely dealing with a lot of mental illness. And that's the kindest thing I can say about her. She was she was very physically abusive to one kid in particular. And he was such a sweet guy. I mean that was that was really difficult to not be like hateful about her, but to see um, the dad, the dad in the situation, he was kind of removed because a lot of the details there and he got his life in order. He, he quit using whatever he was using at the time. He quit his stupid stuff. He got a job. He got promoted. He got his own place. He got away from his mom, which was bringing a lot of, a lot of struggles into their life. I believe, if I remember right, I think she had some addiction issues as well. But he got out on his own. He got his life together, and he got his kids back. 
And, you know, he, the thing is, is those kids, we really thought those kids were coming to our house full time just because of the way that the case had started for through the first six to nine months. I mean, I have them tattooed on me right here. Um, you know, it was, it was one of those, one of those placements that really was very, very deeply connected for us. But he was another one who actually got his stuff together and decided, Hey, I'm going to get my life together and take care of my kids the way I should. And, you know, there was, we didn't do a whole lot of support there, I guess, with him, partly because this was an out of county, uh, out of county placement. So he was quite a ways away. And, but we did push. And because I went, hey, you know, if you're going to get your kids back, I want you to fight and struggle and do everything you can so that when you get these kids back, you keep fighting and struggling to take care of them. And it was tough for him, but to see him go, and it was hard for us when we took them back because they were with us for a year and a half. These guys were, the little boy, because of the abuse from mom, was super closely bonded with Amanda. And we had to take him back and... (laughs) Hey, this is one of those things you don't always agree with what the judge says every time. And right. his choice was the date they went back was on mother's day. Yeah. So on mother's day, we got to drive an hour and a half up the road and take them to their back to their biological father and put them there. And that, that was a tough thing for us. But in all honesty, because we, you know, every now and then I'll go Facebook stock it just a little bit, just to see some pictures. And I see smiles. I see genuine happiness. It looks from what we can see, like it was a wild success. And that's another piece of why we, why we do this, because that reunification, when it's done right, it's such a thing of beauty. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, if we can help children, help families reunify, it's not just helping that one child. It potentially can change the course of a generation of a family you know, and I think that's just a really powerful thing to think about. You know, you can have a hand in changing a generation. Um, and, you know, I worked with, so when I f- first started in child welfare, I was case manager and I worked with kids, primarily just with kids who are already had the rights terminated on them. Um, and then for a while that I did case management with biological parents and this one girl in particular, she was young. Um, she had been on the streets. She had been hooked on drugs. Um, and she lost her baby to care. The baby was brought into care. And when it was, unfortunately, in her situation, it did not have a good ending. Um, her rights were terminated. And her child was placed for adoption. Um, she could not get her life together. But she sat with me um, at a table and was crying. And she said to me, Caroline, you've been kinder to me than anyone has in my entire life, including my own family. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how tragic is that? That a case manager who is basically helping to find an adoptive home for your child has shown you more kindness than anyone in your entire family. Like, that's just heartbreaking stuff, you know? And I mean, there are just so many hurting people involved in child welfare. And, and I, I, I wish society as a whole would be more compassionate about it. That, that's a whole another subject, too. <laughs> There's a lot of things that society can be compassionate about right now. So. <laughs> well, I would agree there, you know, just, just talk about politics or religion on Facebook and you'll see the other side of that. 
perhaps. Um, yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I, I don't get into whether or not you know somebody's a, a Trump or an Obama supporter. It's that's not my bag. But yeah, I think you're you're so right on on that piece. And how do we how do we teach people how to look beyond the act and see the person, and so that they can show love even in a time when it's hard to do that because that's when we need to be loved the most when we're the most unlovable. You know, I, I don't know. I think if we could figure that out, a lot of things would change. Um, I, I do enjoy, I have gone to some churches and talked. Um, I think sharing personal stories um, without revealing, of course, names and stuff and trying to keep it as confidential as possible. But I think sharing personal stories of struggle is really important. Um, I do try to encourage people to see the personhood, not, not the addiction, not the mental health diagnosis, not the history, but the personhood. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's going to be a constant battle um, in any, any type of, you know, social work in general is getting people to see beyond that one act that person did and actually see the person like their history and who they are. Well, and I think part of that, if you look at, and this is from my own experience, but if you look at the religious world, right. And sometimes I feel like I sound like I have an ax to grind and maybe I do something I still need to work through in my own life. Um, I came from a fairly right wing, very conservative church. And one of the things that I remember realizing as I got old enough to make these decisions for myself was that at least the church that I was in and a lot of the places and people I've experienced since then, the current religiosity seems to breed judgmentalism. And that's one of the problems that I see in in looking into some of the churches is that it's almost like it's almost like it's a way to feel better about yourself when you talk bad about people about somebody who's done something so horrible. And I mean, again, five no, not minutes, five seconds on Facebook, right? And and that's what everybody's doing. We're talking bad about people. Instead of, I mean, if you, if you really read that book, right, I've read it a few times. If you really read that book, it says Jesus hung out with prostitutes and thieves and unkind, horrible people, that kind of thing. You know, one of the the apostles was known for killing Christians. Right. I don't see the judgmentalism there. That's, that's not in what should be in the canon of that. And I think that's a difficult thing for me to, to wrap my arms around a lot of times with with the religious crowd is that you go to some of these people and it seems like their goal is more to talk about how horrible they are and how we can fix the situation around them, but not, not help to fix them, not to, not even fix them, but to heal them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I always think of, you know, Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, he knew everything about her, Bef- you know, and he still approached her with kindness. And, you know, if we could figure this out, we could solve a lot of, a lot of problems. And to me, I, you know, I don't ever want to assume that I'm, uh, 
I don't know what the word is fine, but that I'm better than someone else because I haven't made that life choice. Because the truth is there's lots of choices that I've made that aren't that great. Right. And I think we're all, you know, this is a, this is our human experience. We're all struggling. We all have things that we've had to tackle and overcome in our life. Um, no one, no one is perfect. Um, yeah, that list was kind of short, wasn't it? Do what? That list of perfect people was kind of short. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty short. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, and I, and I always go back to a quote, I believe it was Andrew Carnegie, who said, I view every man as my superior in that I can learn something from him. Right. And that's, I was raised in a very, a very judgmental background, I would say, the, the church we went to, just some of the people there, and I saw that a lot, and I internalized a lot of that, and I became a lot of that. And that was a difficult one for me when I read that, you know, and I was like, wait a second, hey, yeah. Every man is my superior. Like, have you met some of these people? But if you really can internalize that and realize that some of these people, while they're making bad decisions, while there are some things that need to change in their life, while they may be hurting other people, they have positive attributes. And I think it was Dr. Dobson, if you remember him on his radio show, Focus on the Family, I heard him say once that, for every every time you're dealing with kids, for every negative interaction, you need to make sure you have 10 positives. Right. You need to build up 10 positive things about them for everything that you say, um, that you try to break down. And if we did that with humans, I mean, I look at the people, people that are around me in my work, in my life, and social circles, the people that I look at and, and have something maybe negative to say about them, and I try to just sometimes sit back and think, have I ever said anything positive about that person? Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult thing. It, I think that's one of the pieces that, that we can work at. I definitely know that it works with kids mm-hmm. because if I can encourage a kid's good behavior more than I discourage their bad behavior, that makes a huge difference in my ability to, to influence their lives. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain how we do that with bio parents though. Uh, I'm not. You know- I was just saying, I'm not good at that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can be compassionate about people and still hold them account- accountable. You know, um, having compassion doesn't mean that you allow them to continue behaving in that way or that you um, just give them a, a free ride or a free ticket off. You know, you can still have compassionate accountability. And that's what we do with biological parents that we work with in the system. You know, I do work for a private agency in Missouri and we, we work with biological parents and um, we like to show compassion to them, but also hold them accountable because you can't, you know, you, we have to hold them accountable because number one, there's federal mandates and a law that, you know, holds us accountable for the actions that we do with them. But you can do that in a way that still shows them that you care about their situation. Um, I just, you know, I, I really believe that empathy and compassion will does, they do more to change the hearts and minds of people than anger and apathy and judgment. Um, I've never had someone convince me of anything and they've done so 
because like with anger or judgment towards me. Now I've had people change my mind on some things or maybe help educate me on things whenever they've approached me with compassion and had good conversations about it. So yeah, this is a topic that is, we could probably go on and on and on about, but definitely working in child welfare and being in the, involved in the foster care system, compassion is something that we need to have for everyone. And that also includes for case managers as well. Cause I've seen people go off on case managers and you know, I've been one and I can tell you that job is extremely hard. And, um, I've been the case manager crying at my desk over kids. I've seen them where I work and other places where I've worked crying over kids that their, their hearts are breaking for. Well, yeah, because you suffer their losses too. You know, if you have any sort of compassion, you know, you you feel for these children. The thing is, is I've never met a single person that wasn't broken in some sort of fashion. Right. You know, we're, we're all broken, you know, and so we could just be kind and just show people love you know, instead of being judgmental and mean and rude and, you know, what can I gain from the situation? You know, just stop being so selfish. You know, case managers have so much on their plate because they really are the middleman between everyone on the team. They are the person that everyone turns to. Oh yeah. You get it from all sides, don't you? And you know, the way the policies and statutes and laws are in place, they dictate a lot of the, a lot of decisions that are made. And ultimately, of course, a judge makes that final decision, but case managers can take the brunt of everyone's anger. And, uh, you know, that's a lot to put on one person for a job that really doesn't pay that much. (laughs) Well, I know I've looked at it and I don't know how people do what they do for the money they do, especially that much. Everything you just said times how many cases are on their caseload? It would just depend on various areas, but anywhere I'd say from 12 on up to 30 plus, you know, now I worked for uh, children's division back in 2001 and I had 33 kids on my caseload and I was considered a specialist. So right. I, I was in a specialized unit. I still have 33 kids on my caseload. But yeah, I mean, a lot of them take, take it home at night with them. Um, and a, a, a case managers will often do things out of, their, out of their own pockets too. So if they know a child's birthday is coming up, especially children that are in, or teenagers that are in like a residential type setting, that type of placement, they will purchase gifts out of their own own pockets to take to them so right. um yeah or yeah. pay to take them to lunch or see a movie yeah. or yeah you know because the money's just not there for that it's it's not in the budget right and i, I actually looked at, at children's division as a uh, possible career change quite a few years back because i think my personal experience my life my personality would be well suited to being an investigator we have a friend of ours who was who was an investigator for years, and I think I would that would probably be a place that I would do well at. And then I looked at the pay scale that Missouri has, and I went, "Well, I'm going to need to keep the job I got so I can work another forty hour a week job just to pay for that." Right. It was amazing how little 
finances and resources the state puts behind that, which is crazy because what you're doing is shepherding the potential benefits or problems that you're going to have in the next generation. And you really control which one those become. And the state's not putting a lot of resources behind that. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's also emotional abuse that can take place. Um, you know, case managers are called a lot of names. I've listened to messages left for them, and it's been shocking. You know, because sometimes whenever so young social workers are starting out, we're talking about a 23-year-old. And next thing you know, that 23-year-old is having to knock on the door with a police officer and enter into a situation that's potentially dangerous, you know? Oh, yeah. Social workers are not, we're not allowed to arm ourselves with anything um, when we go out on visits and stuff. Now, I don't do this anymore in the position I have, but, you know, there were, um, there were a few times that I felt scared when I would go out, you know, so... I can only imagine. I guess at least you can arm yourself with a police officer. Yeah, yeah. In some <laughs> in some situations, but on regular home visits where the child's already in care and the treatment plan's been placed, and they have to go visit the biological parent in the home. Um, right, that's just you. It's just you. Now, usually, usually staff will take an extra person with them, but still, you know, it still can be dangerous. So, yeah, I always try to tell prospective foster families: be nice to case managers. They have a lot on their plate. Absolutely. And- and again, you know, we can't control what decisions are made, but we can control how we respond to people and how we respond to others. You so. can. And, and one of the things that we, we uh, talked with Amy about when we talked about her situation, she talked a lot about how when she first, you know, when her kids first went into care, because she, you know, she would openly say, hey, look, I knew I was an addict. I knew I was addicted. But I always had this pride thing that said, at least I take care of my kids. You know, my kids mm-hmm. are fed, they're clothed, they have everything they need. I take care of my kids, even though I have this addiction issue. And then Children's Division stepped into their life and she lost her kids. And they were the enemy. You know, they were the absolute enemy. And it, as she walked through her, her journey in that, she got to the point where she said, like, these people are trying to help me. Right. And when, uh, when her and her husband had to go to court, to take care of the criminal charges for the drugs and the possession and all that. One of the things that really surprised her was that she had case managers. She had people from children's division, the guardian with litem, all these people who had seen her thrive throughout this really turn her life around and fight and struggle to get to where she was at. They came to her criminal case. They sat on the stand and they testified on her behalf. Right. Mm-hmm. And the judge actually, when, when they sentenced, went to sentencing, he said, I'm going to go against what the prosecution is asking for here. Don't make me regret my decision. Right. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that these people who were her enemies at the, at the beginning became her best allies to it. And so I think what you're saying, you know, that being able to respond in a way that has some empathy, that has some kindness, that's not judgmental and hateful, it, it really built a strong bond. And she, you know, her, her, her kids will stop occasionally at the children's division office just to stop and say hi. Right. You know, her case is completely taken care of, but they'll still stop by because she made some friends there. And that's an amazing story, but you you don't see that a lot. And I can see which a 23 year old girl right now, I was never a 23 year old girl, but I was a 23 year old boy. And I remember him. He was kind of a dummy. 
mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have reacted positively dealing with that kind of stuff, you know, being having that thrown at me. That's got to be a real challenge to to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah, it, I anytime we have new staff members where I work and um or if I'm around someone who is new in the in the field, especially child welfare, doing case management, I always tell them you need to give it at least a year to get used to. If you can make it past one year, you might make it. Um, because it, especially for people who maybe didn't grow up in a bad situation. So just for example, whenever I started child welfare, number one, when I was in my early 20s, I distinctly remember telling my mom, I'll never work with children, especially abused children. Um, but that was because it hit too close at home for me. I just felt like I needed to avoid babies and children. And because if, if, if I could avoid babies and children, then I could avoid having to deal with infertility, you know? So that was the way I managed it. Well, I ended up working in child welfare. <laughs> um, I think God had a different plan for me, but you know, the first year, six months, I would say at least when I started reading, when I, when I got my stack of cases, my stack of files on my desk, I had to go through and read every single case. And a lot of these kids have been in the system for several years. They were your higher level kids, a little bit older youth. Um, and I had to read their, their, their case histories. And I was devastated and floored because I did not grow up in an, in an environment that was abusive and neglectful. I mean, yes, I had medical trauma, but I didn't have abuse and neglect. And um, it can be really hard to, it can just be really hard. So I've had, I've been around younger case managers who have just been so shocked and saddened and cried. And, and like, it's like the, the veil got ripped off about what's really going on, you know, with children. Oh yeah. Now, now me and Amanda come from a little bit different background. Amanda is one of the kids who probably should have been in care. Well, not probably. She should have been in care as a kid. She went through a lot at a young age. Me, on the other hand, my dad was a cop and yeah. I heard all the stories he had to tell about what he would see. You know, he wouldn't necessarily come home and tell his, you know, eight, nine year old son about it, but he'd come home and tell my mom about it. And the walls weren't as thick as they thought they were. And, you know, we'd hear a lot of stories. So I knew that the world had a lot of bad people and a lot of bad things happening to kids and adults as well. And, and so we kind of came out of that world where we knew that there was a lot of trauma and struggle and pain in the world. But I didn't feel like I knew that there was a way for us to to affect that. And that was, you know, we kind of we kind of came into foster care accidentally, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, and I was writing an article and, and stopped by Children's Division to ask them for for some um, some places for people to donate. It was around Christmas time. And I walked out with a handful of paper. I talked to the licensing worker and of course, what does a licensing worker do? <laughs> and I came home with that and, and Amanda and I sat down and next thing, you know, we, we ended up going through the process and right. it was a really good fit for us, yeah. you know, because we were kind of in that same place where we couldn't have any more kids, but we knew well, the world also, needed help. You know, I also came from trauma. I came from that broken home and growing up living that, you know, even when we first met and started dating, I always told you, I want to help kids. Mm-hmm. That's oh, yeah. what I want to do. That's where I feel like I need to be, you know? And so, you know, this is, this is where I've always known 
that I wanted to be was in some sort of capacity of helping, helping children, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody says, you know, oh, they're so lucky to have you, you know, and that really, really bothers me. Um, they are not lucky to have me. They're not lucky to need us. That's I, for sure. I am, I am lucky to have all of my children. Each and every one of my children have taught me some sort of lesson that I needed to learn, you know, and it's been, it's been a blessing. So it's just sometimes you know where you need to be. You just don't know how to get there. <laughs> and it just so happened that fateful, fateful day you brought home a pamphlet and we got to where we needed to be. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Uh, how, would you, how would you say that your own infertility struggle like led you to foster care or did it lead you to that? Was, that, was there a bridge there that, or was it just God had that plan and you were trying to, to keep it separate? Um, probably all of the above what you said, but no, I, um, well, okay. So we were a little bit older when we got married. Um, I was 29, he was 34 and well, I knew I wanted to be as close to 30 as possible before I got married because the clock wasn't ticking for me, the biological clock. And, um, I really wanted to finish graduate school. And that was just my first, one of my first priorities. So my husband and I dated forever. I mean, everyone thought we would never get married, but we knew we would eventually. Um, but we got married at 29, 30, 34. And um, about three or four years into our marriage, maybe about three years or so, we started talking more and more about adoption and we actually originally looked into international adoption and private adoption, but I had worked in child welfare for a couple of years. And so I knew that there was a need there. Um, I felt like I could handle it, you know, like we understood it. And um, when we looked into other avenues of, to adoption, it just didn't feel right. It just, it just, I don't know how to explain it. It just didn't feel like that's something that we, wanted to do. And, um, so we signed up for classes and the day that we got licensed was the exact day that we brought our oldest son home from the hospital as a foster placement. That wow. same day, we're talking about timing, right? And we weren't ready. I mean, we had nothing at all. Like they, they called us at noon. It was on a Friday. And they called and said, well, there's a newborn baby boy that's, um, he had been born, he was two days old at that time, that um, we may end up bringing him to care. So are you interested? And we're like, sure. And they're like, okay, well, we'll call you back and let you know. I'm like, great. So at 445, they call back. Can you be at the hospital in about 20 minutes? (laughs) Nothing. Um, We're like, sure. So it was a terrifying experience. But also just a, an amazing and beautiful experience. Uh, I had to, um, and I'm kind of probably diverting the question a little bit here, but I, I had to demonstrate how to change a diaper, how to feed him, um, how to burp him, I believe, in front of a registered nurse and a child welfare investigator. And I had never really even babysat children because, again, I never wanted to be around children because it just was too close to home for me, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. So I had never done any of that. 
And I had to do it in front of a registered nurse and a child abuse neglect investigator. And I don't know who was more intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) We were both very kind, but I was shaking. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we just, it it was kind of like, it was all of the above. You know, we just felt led to do it. I feel like God was calling me into it, to be honest with you. Um, And now it's, you know, so much easier. Things are, things make some so much more sense whenever you go back and and look at it in hindsight. You know, I always say if, if we knew what was going to happen in the future, then we really wouldn't have a need to have faith. Right. Right. Back on it. It's like, okay, I can see where all those little pieces lined up, you know? Um, Yeah. You you sound like you came to a very similar journey as us. We looked at international adoption and I went, yeah, that's like, 25 30 grand to you know to adopt a kid out of china that's insane we didn't have that much money you know we were young and didn't have a whole lot of cash you know between us and raising a a young family and you know we we looked at kind of all the same avenues and just kind of accidentally ended up you know stumbling across children's division one day and they had a they had a class opening up i think it was within a week or two if i remember right and we took the class, and the day that we got licensed, the, the licensing worker, same gal who gave me the stack of paperwork, she came by and said, here's your license. By the way, I want to talk to you about a couple of kids. Right. Uh-huh. And, yeah, it was it was the same sort of thing. It wasn't even a week later. They Yeah, they had, um, I think, Janiah's birthday was coming up within a few days, and they wanted to have a birthday party for it before she moved. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it was was one of those deals where we like um now what do we do um i guess it's almost like you know you hear the 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 pregnancy term nesting that that's kind of what we did for like two days and and try and get everything figured out what we were doing and i mean we'd had kids they were she had just turned two i think Deshaun was about three and a half at the time and so like we'd had two and three year olds it we knew what to do with them we we had it pretty easy there you know two and three year olds are usually pretty pretty easy you, but you some, need your supplies and your car seats you know and and all those things but but it, of yeah, course you, that's what you she's find a way about. to I, find a way to make it work and manage i know you just you throw some cars on the floor and, and grab a couple barbie dolls and we'll be good to go right <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the, the, the especially the infants i can't imagine that getting an infant brand new when you hadn't had that experience in, in your life yet that's because infants are a lot of work, especially when you don't know what to do with this little thing that lays here and yells at you. Well, and you know, my, so we, we got him on a Friday and my husband went back to work on Monday and I went back to work on Tuesday wow. <laughs> and we were zombies. I mean, I don't even, you know, we, um, we decided very quickly that we would take turns sleeping. So mm-hmm. I would take one night and I'd stay up with him, the baby. And then the next night, my, hu- my husband would stay with him. So every other night, we at least got a full night's sleep. So we were smart enough to figure that part out of it. But, um, I mean, we had a lot of support that, you know, and family and friends and everything. But uh, it was, that was one of the, such a humbling experience for me. Because, you know, whenever we got our oldest son, reunification was the goal. And we worked really closely with his biological mother and um, had a very good relationship with her. And um, it's, it's, you, it puts you in such an, a weird spot, too, because on the one hand, you know, you, you're falling for this child. You love this child. 
Um, on the other hand, you know that you need to support this biological parent. And for us, we felt very compassionate about her. She was easy to love, you know? And um, so, you know, even at our adoption hearing, whenever they were talking about the case and kind of going over the legalities of it, I started crying because I thought of her and the judge, I was crying because of everything, but you know, the judge stopped the proceeding and he said, yeah, Miss Bailey, there have been uh, many tears in my courtroom, but it's good to see tears of, of, you know, joy or good tears. And pretty soon I hear all this sniffling in the back and I turn around like everyone in the courtroom's bawling, you know, like all of our family and friends. Um, but I'm so thankful for that experience of fostering and working with his biological mom and um, all of it. You know, I wouldn't trade any of that for anything. It was, it was such a good experience to have. Well, after going from your experience without having kids and, and all the struggles you went through from, you know, from childhood on up to adulthood and then coming into the foster care system and adoption on what wisdom would you say you could share with some other people who are maybe going through some of the same places right now? Um, so I think for people who are struggling, um, let's just say just with, with infertility, it's really important to recognize it as a genuine loss, just like you would any other loss to, to grieve it. You know, there is a grieving process um, and not to feel bad for grieving it. You know, people will say things to about infertility that they would never say about any other loss. Um, for example, you know, the whole, well, you can always adopt. I mean, you would never say to a grieving widow, well, you can always remarry. Like, I would certainly hope you would never say that, right? Exactly. <laughs> for some reason, people, when it comes to infertility, it's like, well, you know, there, there's lots of kids out there who need homes. Maybe you could be that family for that child. And that's all potentially true, but I would encourage families who are struggling with it to understand that it, it is a sincere loss and, to, and that they do need to, to grieve it. Um, also to never give up, right? For myself, I, I felt like I had a revelation. Um, and really, I mean, I've, I've known I couldn't have kids for 37 years now. So I've known my entire pretty much my entire life. Right. Um, but for me, the moment came when I, we were fostering our oldest son. Um, and that was, you know, for me, it wasn't really about me. You know, I just feel like I played a part in this story. Um, so for people that are going through it, I, I would encourage them to hang on to that hope, um, to seek out any option that they can to become parents to not let others tell them how they should feel about it. You know, just because you can adopt doesn't mean you have to, you know. Um, and to me, and that's something I've, I've always said too, why is the orphan crisis around the world only the responsibility of people who cannot have biological children? It should, should be everyone's responsibility, you know. I also would encourage people that are struggling with it is to, to find the people in your life that get you and that will let you just be you and cry. 
and don't have any expectations of you. That's super important. Um, that's one thing I saw in my husband almost immediately. And for people that are struggling, that are starting out with foster care, um, just recognizing that it's going to be a hard. Yeah. That's one thing that I think they say that in a lot of the, in a lot of the training classes that the people go through that you don't hear when they yeah. say it is that this is going to be hard, mm-hmm. you know, but there's not many things in my life that I've done that were worth doing that weren't hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. My mom, my mom taught me that often the right thing to do is usually the hard thing to do. You know, absolutely. And and growth almost only comes through pain. Yeah. We very rarely grow in a moment of comfort. Yeah. Yeah. That that growth is comes out out of the pain. I know you've talked a little bit about having, um, having, you know, a kid with some special needs and, you know, you've been through a lot of trauma and loss in your own life and your kids have been through a lot of trauma and loss. How do you cope with not only theirs, but your own trauma and loss and, um, and do the same with your kids? What, what, um, what coping mechanisms or, or what strategies do you use to keep that from being something that overwhelms you? Mm-hmm. Well, something that my husband and I do is if we've had a particularly like rough night with a child, we do have three children and they all um, have a history of trauma um, in various ways, various, various, but similar, if that makes sense. Um, so we will try and process it ourselves and talk about it. So if I'm like not on that night, like I'm not doing a good job of being a trauma informed parent, my husband will call me out on it and vice versa. Um, and to me, it's like, well, you know, just be honest with yourself. Like, wow, you know, you really kind of blew that. Now you need to go apologize to that child. You know, I think it's really important for kids to hear us apologize to them. Like mommy had a moment, you know, sorry. Um, so communication for us, not setting ourselves up for failure. So I would love more than anything to take my kids out late at night to a late night movie, right? Like a lot of my friends do with their children. <laughs> no way. No way. My kids do not do well late at night. Um, we have sleep issues. As it gets later and later, we have pretty massive hyperactivity issues. So we just don't set ourselves up for failure like that. Um, when it comes to worrying about, you know, I don't really worry if my kids don't make, uh, well, I'm trying to get, get a good example, but like if, if they don't want to do well, my oldest son, now he was a competitive gymnast for about six and a half years. Oh, um, wow. and he just recently quit, but you know, if they don't want to do sports or be number one at something, I'm totally fine with that because that is such a small issue, you know, um, compared to, so I don't worry about those things. Like I have friends who worry about if their kids are going to make like, I don't know the A team, right. Or the first, first chair or whatever it is. I'm like, Hmm, I just want my child to pass school this year. Like I want (laughs) her to come home with one solid friend. You know, um, I do think that you have to advocate and know, know what you're talking about when you do go to school and talk for your children, 
on behalf of your kids. We've been really blessed in the sense that we've got a, a really good schools that we deal with. Um, now our oldest son is now in middle school, so that's been a whole different, that's much harder experience. <laughs> it's been hard, but elementary school, you know, I've been very open with them and talking with them about some of the issues that my kids deal with. And um, the elementary school that we go to is they're, they're just amazing. They actually, for my daughter, they developed a chart for her. And as incentives for the chart, they use her love languages as incentives. Oh, wow. So she earns, if she has a good, a good day, she'll earn um, quality time with another teacher. And not because she's in trouble, because she wants to help out. So her, her love languages are quality of time and acts of service. So they always try to combine that into a reward system for her. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I know. I've not asked many people, schools are willing to be on board with things like that. No, I wish they could just keep them all through high school, but that wouldn't work. But um, <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, it's that took a lot of communication, you know, like back and forth communication. Okay, what can we do? Let's try something different. You know, always be willing to try something different too with your kids. Um, for me, it's important to recognize what your children's triggers are, um, what they're, how they're feeling. You know, usually you can tell when you look at your child that maybe it might not be the best day. (laughs) You know know what I mean? Like there's usually something like, Oh, not quite. Uh, one of my kids struggles with pretty bad anxiety. So we don't do big surprises we may do one day prep in advance and that's it. Yeah. Um, like I have friends who will plan vacations for their kids and tell them, tell them like in, on Christmas break, you know, okay, we're going to go to the ocean in May. Like that would not fly in my home. We actually, <laughs> uh, we did take them to the ocean a couple of years ago and we picked them up from school and said, okay, go pack your bags. We're, we're, we're going to the ocean tomorrow. Because my, one of my kids would have packed off for five months, like before we left, just very anxious. Um, yeah, we, we deal with some anxiety in our house as well. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's amazing that you have a school that's that, that open to doing something outside of the, you know, the 1935 school model. Right. Yeah. I, I will tell so my youngest son, he'll, he's in second grade right now. He'll be, um, he'll be my last kid there. And I'm probably going to cry like a baby when he, whenever he leaves that school, because they've just been so incredible. Um, just amazing. You know, from yeah. every single teacher from the principal, I mean, everyone there has just been so awesome. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we do and with our kids, especially through the elementary school and, as well, depending on, on needs through, through middle school is I've been in to talk to every teacher and say, Hey, you know, I mean, I try and give them a piece of the story just so that they can understand, look, you know, depending on the kids we've dealt, you know, obviously with drugs, with death, right. with, right. you know, overdoses, with all, all the things that kind of fit into that world you see so much of and the violence and the abandonment and, and, you know, how kids respond to maybe, you know, I, I have one, one son who, who, if you tell him, if you say something in a negative fashion or try to, if he feels like you're trying to force him into something, mm-hmm. um, you may as well have just shot yourself in the foot because you just made it impossible to get it done. 
if you if yes. you can bring him alongside you to work with you, that's a huge benefit. Like that will work. If yeah. you tell him you have to do this right now, eh, not you're probably work. not not gonna work out. And and, yeah. and I've had some teachers who who've responded really well. Actually, um um oh Adam's wife, I can't remember her name, um, but when he was she was his fifth grade teacher, I think. Mm-hmm. A guy I used to work with. Turns out you haven't seen him in years. His wife ended up being like his fifth grade teacher. Mm-hmm. And he was into the comic book thing at the time. And she would go out and she bought a couple little, you know, just little comic book things as a reward system. And she was so very helpful in the way that she dealt with. Now, right now we've got a couple middle school teachers, one in particular that he and her don't get along well. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're going to fix that, that personality class. And she's not, I, I hate to, I don't want to, don't want to say it that way. It's, not that she's she's doesn't know or she's not informed. She's just not as open to understanding that, hey, the way you teach 95% of your kids is great for 95% of your kids. Right. But 5% of them, you know, they need something different. Right. And I know I'm asking a lot for you to realize this and, and shift your strategies a little bit, especially considering you've got 150 kids, 120 kids, something like that in the middle school that you deal with all day. And for this small handful of kids, you're probably going to have to do something different. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been a bit of a, of a challenge trying to get that, that conversation to make a difference because I mean, I get it. She's got 120 kids. Mm-hmm. She's got her plate full and half these kids are half decent kids. Half of them come from places that, that put them in a lot of struggle when they get to school Right. and middle school is a struggle on top of that as well. And, so she's got a lot on her plate and I'm asking her to do something a little extra for this, for this one particular kid. And that's a bit of a challenge sometimes. Not every teacher is always willing to do that. And so in the process, I'm trying to teach him how to have those same coping mechanisms with her, which is a lot to ask of a 14 year old. Right. You know, yeah. I'm asking you to do what most adult men do not do. Right. You know, most adult men aren't terribly, well-informed about what their triggers are and the triggers are and watching other people and trying to, to manage that. But, but we're getting there. I, I wouldn't say this has been a banner year for, for that piece of it, but I've seen small forward steps. I was going to say, we've had an amazing year. From well, the years uh, yeah. that we've had in the past, we've had, a, had an amazing Acad- academic year. <laughs> Academically speaking this year, we like, this is the one teacher that, that we struggle with a little bit and that's, it's really not bad. Especially because we're a rural school district, you know, we're, we kind of get the teachers who are getting their start and I get it. You know, I'm, it's not that I'm mad at them or, I, you know, I'm not trying to talk bad about them, but most, most school teachers get their start in these smaller districts and then move on to the bigger districts where there's more money available. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's, that's been a struggle for us. I really wish there was a statewide push on making every school in, in Missouri trauma informed. Oh, that would be amazing. That- I mean, I do know that there are some schools and some school districts that are working on it. Um, I know even um, where I live, there's there are some principals that are involved with going through some trauma training right now. So, and I'm seeing more of an interest in trauma-informed care. You know, I was asked to go speak to um, a couple of churches, their preschools on trauma-informed care, because they were seeing some kids in their preschools that had been either adopted internationally or through foster care or had other issues going on that they had not really 
didn't really know what to do with. So I do see more of an interest in trauma-informed care, but it would be such a dream to have the funding and the capability for every school in Missouri to be trauma-informed. I mean, what, an, what a difference we would see in academic successes. Oh, yeah. I mean, how our children would flourish. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, I mean, when our older kids were younger, we, we did homeschool them for a little while, and it's not that hard to teach the average kid who's well-adjusted without a lot of trauma. It's just not that hard to teach that, but you know, that your real struggles come in those, come in those places Mm -hmm. and the kids who are struggling, that's who really needs that extra time and energy. And Mm -hmm. I I don't know how, do we we need to go hang out at the governor's mansion so we can have a conversation with him or, you know, I, I admittedly have no idea where, where you would move to, to get, the local state or even federal government to see that as an important thing. But, you know, so many of these kids that come who age out of the system, who maybe don't end up with a strong family that they're, they're connected with. They end up at a high rate in prison. Oh, absolutely. Or homeless. And, and or homeless. And, and the amount of resources it takes to manage that after effect would really be offset. If we could put that, that energy and, and money into it, ahead of time to where we could deal with these problems these kids are experiencing. And the worst part is, is the trauma that these kids are experiencing is no fault of their own. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not that, that they caused it. It happened to them. And when you take a, you know, a young kid, uh, say a six year old kid, you put them to a high level of trauma. You can't possibly expect them to know how to react and cope correctly. So if we don't have that structure around them being able to be taken care of work, it's, it really is a system, a section of the system anyways, it sets them up for failure. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of foster families and I, I we experienced this, this as well, that number of foster families who's really young children, three, four, and five years old that are in preschool that are being kicked out of preschools because of um, aggressive behavior. You know, and now some of that, I mean, three-year-olds can be kind of rough sometimes, you know, and we've all, we've, we've all been around three-year-olds. So some of the, there is some normal, some normalized um, social development that goes on, but I see a higher rate of foster children that are, you know, preschool age, they're being kicked out of preschools. And these families who are working foster parents, they are always struggling finding placement. So we, let's just go ahead and include trauma-informed preschools in that mix, too, because what a, I mean, and that would be fantastic. You know, preventative care is really the way to go. So starting in the preschool age. And we are, we are so fortunate in that. Um, we have a preschool out here, and the gal who owns it, Tanya and Kim, I think, are the two ladies who own it. But they are super deep into that. Awesome. And, you know, we've had some issues with hitting or biting and our kids have bit somebody and our kids have been bit by somebody and she handles it in such an appropriate way and doesn't just throw them out. And I I came in one day to to pick up my little, little guy called Twitch and uh, I come in and Twitch is off in the corner. He comes over and gives me a hug and Tanya who was in the room and she's not normally in there. I walked over, talked to her for a second and she's sitting on the floor and she's got a young girl, probably I'd guess, six years old, maybe kind of laying on, on the floor. She's got her head on her lap 
you know, on Tanya's lap and Tanya's kind of just stroking her hair a little bit. And you can tell that she has some, some sort of developmental issues going on. And, um, and, you know, and she took the time out of her day. She had a kid who's, I mean, she was, she was burned over a good portion of her body. There was a lot of trauma in her story. I don't know her whole story, but you could tell there was trauma and there was some mental illness stuff as well. And Tanya just stopped what she was doing for the day. This is a lady who's running a business. She's running a daycare, got a lot of kids to take care of, a lot of government paperwork because she t- she's one of the few people who takes in foster kids right. all the time. She that's She's one of the few that's licensed for that. So I know she has a lot going on. She's always busy, but not that day. That day she was sitting on the floor with a young girl, you know, trying to soothe her, calm her down. And, and just get her through what was a really hard day. And I, I don't know her story. I'll never know her story, obviously. But the fact that we have somebody who's willing to take that much care, that is, that, that's one of the places where we're so super fortunate. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I don't know if you have a place in, down there that, that's like that, but I don't, I don't imagine every town does. No. Um, we do have a couple of ones that are better than others. Um, but I will say that my kids toured a lot of preschools. <laughs> they visited a lot. We'll sit that way. Um, and we finally found one for my daughter that really met her needs and they did very well with her. And my youngest son did really great. Now we do have an early childhood program through the school district that is free, free for kids. Um, but they have to qualify for it with either developmental um, issues, anything that's going to possibly put them at risk once they get into kindergarten. So my youngest son did qualify for that and he did great there. Um, But yeah, a lot of the, the, the daycares that are preschools that take foster children um, could really use more trauma informed care. They really could. So what would you recommend to people? Do you have any resources as far as learning to become a more trauma-informed parent in general, a foster parent or just parent or just human? So I, I always encourage people to Google it, literally. Um, TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention. Um, anything by Dr. Karen Purvis. Um, there is a conference that goes on every year called Empowered to Connect. Have you guys been to that yet? I haven't. Um, Auburn mentioned that, and I looked it up. Yeah. I don't think it's in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. I, I, could, I couldn't find any location tabs or anything on their, on right. their website. It was, I, honestly, I did a quick Google search and found the, the webpage. I think it was the right webpage, uh, but I, I didn't see it anything about it being in St. Louis anytime and they might just need to update the website still for, yeah. for the and next it's year. Usually a, it's usually a simul, like a simulcast conference. So you can okay. like actually get a church to host it. There's like a hosting fee, but um, I, you know, I worked in child welfare for lots of years before I attended my first one. And I walked out, was like, Oh, I've known nothing this entire time. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> it was shocking, honestly. Um, what I thought I knew, which, I mean, I kind of knew a little bit of, but really didn't understand fully until this conference. It's just, it's really good. Um, you know, anything from Dr. Karen Purvis, which obviously has, she had to do with the Empower to Connect conference and TBR. Okay. Um, 
the post Institute, they, they have some great material on trauma. Um, people can learn about ACEs. It's A-C-E-S, or Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. And it kind of tells you like what your own trauma was like as a child and how that affects your lifespan. Um, yeah, you know, anymore, there's just so much more information now about trauma-informed care than there was even probably 10 years ago. But yeah, I just encourage people to do their research. You know, for families that are struggling right now with kids that are have what I call extra needs, um, they need to, if they have a group of family or friends who understand, that's who they need to go to. So, you know, whenever I'm struggling with something that my a behavioral issue or a decision on whether or not we should try a different medication or any of that, I know that I can go to my friends who have adopted or fostered children with similar issues. My other really, really close friends, I love them dearly, but they don't, they don't have to deal with some of that stuff with their kids. So I'm not going to ask them necessarily for advice. Now I do have several of them that work in child welfare as well, or at least used to. So I, I made a mega of them, but I always tell families, you know, if you're really struggling, find a support network that gets it because you can learn so much just from word of mouth and, you know, support group style talking about issues. I know that's helped me at least. That's one thing, you know, both a man and I, our families, are not what you would call trauma informed families. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I ran from a switch a few times as a kid and, and I'm not going to say I didn't deserve it, <laughs> but yeah, you know, yeah. my, my family just wasn't around that yeah. a whole lot. They didn't see that. And, and even my siblings, you know, we're, we're not a terribly close family. I'll see my, my brother a few times. He, you know, probably, I probably see him more than anybody and he only lives a few miles down the road. Mm-hmm. The rest of my family, I see him a couple of times a year is about it. And they don't, they don't understand that side of it, I think, because they've never lived it. Right. You know, yeah. you've never seen a kid scream bloody murder for an hour without like stopping any longer than it takes to take a breath right. because, you know, because he's seen trauma real. Right. I mean, some of the, the more difficult trauma of any of the kids we've, we've had and people don't understand that side of it. And it's difficult to find people who do so. So yeah, I will definitely make sure I put some of those um, those resources in the show notes, which yeah. I have to remind myself to do because I'm terrible at, at show notes. <laughs> yeah. But that that's that's great though that there's some resources out there to help people. I really appreciate you coming on here today, Carolyn. And um, I said Carolyn again. That's all right. I've heard it before. I I appreciate you coming on here today, Caroline, and talking to us about trauma-informed care and some of your own struggles with your own trauma and Mm -hmm. kids and what we can do to change the world to make it a better place. Is there any place where people can find you online that you would like to to come see you or send you a message? Sure. So my blog is barrentoblessed.com. And you can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram under the same name. So it's, do you want me to spell it? That's fine. Okay. Uh, B-A-R-R-E-N, then T-O, and then B-L-E-S-S-E-D. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll put that on there as well. And hopefully people who 
would like more information about the trauma care or have questions or just want to read some great stories because I, you know, I've read through parts of your blog because I've found your Facebook page. I didn't know you had a blog. I just wondered. So I typed in bearingtheblust.com and sure enough, you showed up and I was reading through some of those and, and went, wow. Yeah. She's, there's some awesome stories, very inspirational stories. I wasn't surprised when I read your bio, it said that you'd written for adoption.com and some other places that you, you have a, you have a, a skill there. That's thank that, you. Yes. I'm not always that, that uh, good with, with my writing and people don't connect with it all the time. And I get that. And you have a skill that, that can really reach out and touch people. And I'm glad you've decided to leverage that in one of your ways of helping to change the next generation. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, we appreciate you being on here today. Thanks a lot for showing up. Okay. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening all the way through. If you're trying to find us on a specific podcasting platform, just search for Jason and Amanda Palmer or Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or anywhere where you find your podcast. You can also download it so that you can listen wherever you're at, even when you aren't online. You can find us online at jasonmpalmer.com, where you can read our blog and listen to all of our previous podcasts. If you have a story that you'd like to tell on the show, please send me an email at jasonmpalmer at yahoo.com. And be sure to put podcasts in the subject line. Or send me a message through our Facebook page at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. We'll see you next time. And as always, if you know a child in danger of being abused and neglected, be certain to contact your local authorities or call 1-800-4-CHILD. That's 1-800-4-A-CHILD.